If you've got a bulletin on the way in, there's some notes where you can follow along, sort of an outline for the morning. Our passage is Philippians chapter 2, so if you have a Bible, open to Philippians 2 or pull it up on your app or however you have access to the Scriptures, find Philippians chapter 2. One of the things I told you when we started this series in the book of Philippians is that Philippians, according to one well-known pastor and author, is filled with coffee cup verses. And what he means is there's just a lot of verses you can pull out of Philippians and they're perfect for sort of slapping on the outside of a coffee cup or putting on a t-shirt if you've been to youth camp or posting with a nice sort of sunset on your Facebook page and put the verse up there. And it's just filled with these kind of verses uh, that resonate with us, just little sound bites that connect us to the truth of God's Word. And so it was interesting this week, the first commentary I opened up when I got ready to study said Philippians 2, verse 19 to 30. No one's favorite verse is in this passage. And I thought, well, that's an exciting way to start off a sermon, isn't it? No one's favorite verse is in this passage. I got to reading, I got to looking at it, and I thought, you know, I'd be willing to bet a chicken fried steak at Zucchi's with jalapeno gravy that at the beginning of this series, if I had said, open to Philippians, and everybody write down the address of your favorite verse in Philippians, I bet no one would have picked a verse in chapter 2 between verse 19 and 30. And if you come up to me after the service and say, well, it's my favorite verse, it's always been my favorite verse, you better have it tattooed on your arm or something. I mean, it's better be serious. And I'll buy you a chicken fry. It is an important passage. It's basically a travel itinerary. This is something like Chris Harrington would put together planning for a mission trip. It's just sort of this guy's going here and this guy's going here and here's why they're going to these places. So on the surface, it's kind of boring. Here's why it's important. It gives us sort of a glimpse of the day-to-day life and ministry of Paul and some of his friends. And sometimes in our brains, we think the Apostle Paul, great missionary, traveling all over the world, doing crazy things, shipwrecked, and all this exciting stuff, bitten by snakes. Sometimes it's not that exciting. Sometimes it just boils down to, look, I need you to go do this, and we've got to get this done, and I need you to go here, and we've got to get this done. And that's what Christian ministry actually looks like. So the idea in this passage is pretty simple. Paul is sending Timothy and a guy named Epaphroditus back to Philippi. Timothy, if you look at verse 19, he says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon. So he's getting ready to go at some point in the near future. And Paul's hope is that Timothy will go to Philippi, then come back to Paul where he's imprisoned in Rome and bring him a report from Philippi. And he's saying, I'm hoping that I'm going to send Timothy soon and then he can come back with news. Epaphroditus is going back home to Philippi. More than likely, he's carrying the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, what we know as the book of Philippians. And he's taking it back home to his home church. And when he gets home, he's going to stay home. He's going to plug back into his church family and he's going to find a way to serve the Lord in that capacity. Now, it's a little bit uh, difficult to understand this passage if you know nothing about Timothy and nothing about Epaphroditus. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I need to tell you a few things about these guys. So we'll start with Timothy. He's the son of a Jewish mother and a Gentile father, and Paul considered him his son in the faith. And you can go back and look up some of these verses, but the basic story goes like this. 
on Paul's first missionary journey, he stops in Timothy's hometown. And that's where they meet for the very first time. Maybe he got saved when Paul stopped and he's preaching. Maybe he was already saved. We know his mom and his grandma were Christians before he was. But that's where Paul and Timothy meet. Then on Paul's second missionary trip, do you remember what happened between trip one and trip two? Right, Trip one is Paul and Barnabas right, and a few other guys. But Paul and Barnabas are the team. They get ready to go on this next trip, and Paul and Barnabas can't agree. They can't get together on the same page. And Barnabas says, I want to take... John Mark with me, and Paul says, I ain't going on a mission trip with that guy. He quit halfway through the last trip. There's no way I'm going with him. So they split ways. They go different ways. And almost right out of the gate on his second missionary trip, Paul stops back in Timothy's hometown, and he says, Timothy, why don't you come with us? Why don't you be a part of this mission trip? And Timothy jumps on board on the team. He fills this vacancy, and Timothy and Paul take off. And from then on out, it's almost impossible to separate the two. Paul wrote 13 letters that we have in the New Testament. In five of those, you'll find Timothy almost attached to Paul's hip. And you find two letters written just to Timothy. Paul writing to this young pastor, telling him how to serve, how to lead, how to preach. These two guys are extremely, extremely close. And so Timothy's involved in our passage this morning. Then there's this guy named Epaphroditus. He was not Jewish or half Jewish or anything like that. He was just a Gentile. He was a member of the church in Philippi, and he risked his life to carry a missionary offering to Paul in Rome. So the church in Philippi knew that Paul was in prison. We've talked about this. They didn't exactly feed prisoners or take care of prisoners. You were dependent on the mercies of other people who cared about you. They said, we're concerned about Paul. Let's pass the plates. Let's send this money to our friend Paul in prison so that he can eat, so that he can live. And we don't know exactly how Epaphroditus got the job. Did he volunteer for that? Did he say, hey, I'll make the sacrifice to go? Did the pastors of the church get together and ask him to take it? Did they like draw straws and he got the short straw? Sorry, you got the short one. You got to take the offering. We don't know. Maybe he was going to Rome anyways. We don't get that impression. My point is we don't exactly know how he got this job. Here's what we do know. The church in Philippi who took up this offering, trusted Epaphroditus. They trusted him to take the money that they gave for Paul, to put it in his pocket or in his bag or whatever, and to get that money all the way to Paul in Rome. They didn't have any questions or any doubts that he was going to sort of stop off here or stop off there, spend a few dollars here, a few dollars there. They trusted this guy to get the money where it needed to go. One last thing you should know is that Epaphroditus, in case you're curious, it means charming. So if any of you are looking for a name for a baby boy, maybe you want to consider Epaphroditus. You could do worse. Here's the big idea of the passage. Very, very simple. Paul presents Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of real Christian ministry. Looking at these guys, you see what it's like to serve other people, to serve God by serving other people, to be involved in Christian ministry. And real quick, we're going to get to the passage in a minute, but I want you to see how this fits in the overall picture of Philippians, okay? Back up to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. You remember this verse? Some of you, this may be the verse that you would have picked if I said write down your favorite verse. Philippians 1, 27. 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let the way that you live be worthy of the good news of Jesus and what that has done in your life. And if you remember the flow of Philippians, that leads right into Philippians 2. And in Philippians 2, the whole point in verse 1 to 11 is you need to be like Jesus. Paul sets Jesus up on this pedestal as this example of humility that we need to follow. And he says, look, Jesus was in the form of God. He humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, and he was found in human form. And then he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he describes what Jesus did for us, who he is. He's God who became man, and what he did, he died on the cross for our sins, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then God raised him from the dead and gave him new life, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the whole point of Paul describing all of that stuff about Jesus is to say, be like him. Philippians 2, he says this in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is who Jesus is and what he did. You need to be like him. Now let's just sort of take off the church talk and be honest for a minute. When Paul says, you guys need to be just like Jesus. That's a little bit intimidating, right? Like that's a standard that Paul sets so high that you hear what he says and you think, how am I going to do that? How am I going to come anywhere close to the standard that's been set? It reminded me as I thought about it, it reminded me of, of Brooke and I. Uh, we like to watch the Olympics when the Olympics roll around. And uh, I'm talking about the Summer Olympics. And I have the events that I like to watch, and Brooke has some events that she likes to watch. And she really likes to watch the gymnasts, the rings and the, the bars and the vaulting and all that stuff. So we always end up sitting there watching it. And every four years, we have the same conversation, okay? We're watching this stuff, and I lean over and say, that doesn't look so hard to me. <laughs> like... That's playground stuff, like rings, bars. You just hang from the rings. That's all you got to do, and they give you a medal. I'm pretty sure I could go out there and do that right now. And that's the end of the conversation because she has nothing to say to that. Just look at me and sort of roll her eyes, turn the volume up on the Olympics or something. That's it. And you understand, just like my wife understands, oh, it's hard, right? And I don't care how much time, Pastor, you spend training and working out and taking steroids and any other advantage you can get, you're not going to be able to do what those guys do because the standard is too high, okay? You take that example and you say, in an infinitely greater way, if I'm a member of the church in Philippi or a member of Emmanuel Baptist, what am I supposed to do with this command, just be like Jesus? It's all you got to do. The perfect, sinless, righteous Son of God. Just be like Him. Paul knows that's a high standard. And he understands that that can almost be a little bit intimidating. And so what he's doing in Philippians 2, starting in verse 19, is to say, let me tell you about a couple of guys who are doing it. He doesn't have any, any illusion that Timothy and Epaphroditus are as good as Jesus or sinless like Jesus or righteous like Jesus. But he's saying these are two men who are following Jesus and serving Jesus and involved in ministry that you can look at and maybe it's a little more accessible 
It's like a, a living, breathing, in the flesh example of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, there's only one more clarification I need to give you before we jump in. And it's a clarification that comes from the book of Ephesians. Not Philippians, but Ephesians. Paul says this. He, this is Jesus, God, the deity. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds. Some translations say pastors right there. And teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Some of you this morning filled in the the big idea and the word was ministry. You know, you filled that in and you're like, this is the best Sunday ever. I'm tired. The rest of this sermon doesn't even apply to me. I mean, I got the big idea. I know what it means. Easy. I'm done. I'll just let the pastors worry about the backside of the sheet. Somebody nudge Corey. Make sure he gets all the blanks filled in. Pastors need to know. Make sure the deacons, they got a little blue tag on maybe. Make sure they get all those blanks filled in. My Sunday school teacher. But, you know, me. Yes, you. Paul says the job of pastors and teachers and leaders of the church is not to do all the ministry, but to equip the saints, the believers, the Christians for the work of the ministry. And then to get in the trenches right beside you and do it with you. But if a church has an idea that it's the pastor's job to do ministry, it's the deacon's job to do ministry, it's the elder's job to do ministry, you've totally missed what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to be a part of his church. This is not deacon stuff, elder stuff, pastor stuff, staff stuff. This is not the kind of stuff that applies to you if you get a paycheck with your name on it from Emmanuel Baptist Church only. This is the kind of stuff that applies to you if you've repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus. If you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I believe that he died to forgive me of my sins, everything that we're about to say about Christian ministry has application in your life. Okay, So nobody gets off the hook this morning. Everybody listens to what Paul says in this travel itinerary, and we say, what do I need to learn about Christian ministry? How do I apply it to my life? So look at the passage. We'll read it, and then we'll dig in. Philippians 2.19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete 
what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. Father, give us wisdom this morning. Help us to understand your word. Father, help us to see it as an unchanging authority in our lives. Father, I pray for those in the room who know Jesus, and I pray that they would see this description of Christian ministry, and they would think about how it might look if it were to be implemented in their life. Father, I pray for those in the room this morning who are not followers of Jesus, and I pray that even as we describe what it looks like to be involved in ministry, that they would hear the good news, they would understand your grace, and they would run to Jesus for salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One simple question this morning, and we'll have sort of a dual focus. The question is, how did Paul describe Christian ministry? According to Paul, what does it look like? What should it look like in our lives? And the first focus we're going to have is just us as a church, meaning we're the saints. The work of the ministry is our job, not just somebody's job who has a plaque on the wall or an ordination certificate or they're a deacon or whatever, but what does this look like in our lives and how how might we apply it to our lives? The second focus is a little bit more narrow, and I've picked this Sunday for Hunter's ordination on purpose. We've spent the last several months, well over a year, meeting with Hunter at our elders' meetings, talking to Hunter, uh, visiting with him about his salvation experience, about his family life, about character issues that are set forth in Scripture for somebody who's recognized as a pastor. We've talked about doctrine and the Bible. We've spent all this time together looking at his life and examining him, and our elders have come to the conclusion we shared with you several weeks ago that we're ready to ordain him as an elder of our church, to set him apart for that task. And so, Hunter, this morning, the narrow focus for you is to say the things that Paul describes in Philippians 2, 19 to 30, ought to apply to your life in a couple of ways. Number one, as you invest in our people, our young people and their families and their parents, as you invest in people in our church, these are the things you're looking to create as you equip people for the work of ministry. This is sort of your goal, something that you're shooting at. And also, As a member of our church, this is something that certainly ought to apply to your life as you look at your own ministry here. How does my life and my ministry line up with the things that Paul describes? So here we go. Application for Hunter and application for the entire church. How did Paul describe Christian ministry? Number one, in Christian ministry, you play a variety of roles. You wear a lot of hats. Verse 19, we're introduced to Timothy. If you read the rest of the New Testament, you know that Timothy was a missionary. He was a messenger. He was Paul's assistant. He was an author. He was a pastor. And in verse 19, he is sent on this mission to check on the church in Philippi and bring news back to Paul. So he's playing a variety of roles. What about Epaphroditus? We don't know as much about him personally, but look how Paul describes him. He's a brother. He's a worker. He's a soldier, he's a messenger, and he's a minister. And I wish I had time. I I took some notes and I studied this week about each of those points. You could just spend an entire sermon talking about what does it mean to be a brother and a fellow worker and a soldier and a messenger and a minister. For the sake of time, we're just going to say this man wears a number of different hats. He plays a number of different roles in his service to God's people and in his service to God. The same thing is true of you. I tell our staff regularly, 
you don't get to say that's not in your job description. And it's usually not because somebody has said, well, that's not in my job description. I usually sort of give a preemptive strike, right? When I'm about to ask somebody to do something that really isn't in their job description, just say, just so you remember, your job description is very broad. And it includes miscellaneous duties. And we're about to insert something into that category. Ready? In our new members class, we just had a new members class, plugged in class. I say the same thing to the folks that come and join our church. Right? One of the things that you have to do when you join our church is you have to understand and sign our membership covenant. And the covenant's really simple. It just has some things. I'll commit to this. I'll commit to this. I'll commit to this. And one of the things that we talk about, I make sure every class to bring it up is... You signed, if you've joined this church and you've been through our class, you've signed, I will develop a servant's heart. I'll jump in. It's not all about what is my favorite thing to do, what am I best at, but if something needs to be done, we jump in and we do it. That's true for the people who work here. That's true for the people who are members here. In Christian ministry, you play a number of different roles. So in your Sunday school class, when Miss Jennifer and Miss Terry put that nice little list in there that says, your day in the nursery is coming, and we need this many volunteers, it may end up being usually the same people, and depending on your personality, we may not want you back there with the kids. <laughs> My point is to say, nobody gets to say, well, you know, snotty noses, I took the spiritual gift test, and snotty noses did not appear anywhere on there. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save that opportunity for someone else. No one has a spiritual gift of dirty diapers. But somebody's got to go change them. So you serve. Easter's coming up. Every study I've ever read says at Easter and Christmas, people are more open, and they're usually always very open, but they're more open to being invited to church. And I bet you know some people, work with some people, go to school with some people, live by some people who need to go to church, who don't. And no one, when that opportunity rolls around, gets to say, well, I I just kind of get nervous. Well, I don't know what to say. It's easy. All you have to say is, will you come to church with me? That's it. And no one gets to sort of back out of that and say, well, it's really not my thing. You just wear a number of hats when you're involved in Christian ministry. You do a lot of different things. You look at Epaphroditus. He's a brother, a a soldier, a messenger, a minister. You look at Timothy and all the different things that Paul asked him to do. You don't see these guys saying, well, I'd rather not. It's really not my area of giftedness. It's really not the area I'm passionate about. You just see them plugging in and serving wherever they're needed. Can I be honest with you? For the most part, Christianity does not spread because of heroic missionaries and celebrity pastors. In the United States, we're pretty much totally dependent on the idea of celebrity pastors to spread Christianity, and it's killing Christianity. Christianity spreads through people like Timothy and Epaphroditus and you and you and you, who say, my job is ministry. And that means I'm going to wear a number of different hats. Inviting people to church when it makes me uncomfortable. Serving in the nursery of my church so that when those people that I invited come and bring their kids, somebody's back there to change their diaper and to hold them. 
I'm willing to do whatever it takes, and I'm willing to wear a number of different hats. So in Christian ministry, you play a variety of roles. Number two, in Christian ministry, you have concern for God's people. Concern for God's people. Verse 20, spelled out clearly, there is no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Verse 26 is almost kind of funny. Talking about Epaphroditus, he says, he's been longing for you. He misses you. He's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Meaning, Epaphroditus knows that word got back to Philippi that he was sick. And he's not concerned about being sick. He's concerned, they're going to be worried about me. They're going to be scared to death. This was a serious illness, and word got back to Philippi that he was sick, and no one had an iPhone to text back to Philippi and say, no, it's okay, he he got better. We'll talk about the trip here in just a minute. It's a real trip. And Epaphroditus knows they're, they're scared out of their mind. They probably think I'm dead. And he's worried for his friends because he knows that they're worried about him. So what would this look like? Genuine concern for God's people, okay? I don't think you can say it's present in your life if you don't attend church with some regularity. To say I'm concerned for God's people if you never meet with God's people. It certainly would be a positive when you walk by God's people in the hallway on Sunday morning to smile and to say hello. That's a good start. But if that's where you stop showing up and saying hi, how are you, I'm fine, you're good, good, and you go separate ways... I don't know that we can call that genuine concern for God's people. In fact, I think that most of this genuine concern that you might have for God's people isn't going to be expressed at 4020 East University between the hours of 9 and noon on Sundays. Meaning, genuine concern for God's people is going to take place outside of this building outside of the hours that we gather here together for worship. It has to spill over. It can't just be here. And as I start to say that, some of you say, that just sounds really inconvenient. Because I'm really busy. Join the busy club. We're all busy. And it is inconvenient. And it does put a cramp on your schedule. One theologian described it like this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. These are the kind of things he's, he's describing here. These are the kind of things, remember the parable Jesus told where he said, on the last day, Jesus is going to reward certain people for giving him a cup of cold water and for feeding them and housing them and all that stuff. And they say, we don't remember when you did that, when we did that for you. Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it for me. Those people who crossed your paths, they weren't just an interruption. That was God crossing your path, giving you an opportunity to minister to somebody. You can go through your life like I'm prone to do. I know myself. I'm prone to see people as an interruption to my life and my schedule and the things that I need to get done. Or you can stop and just try to beat it into your brain like I have to do and say, that's not just some, some annoying person crossing my path, that's God crossing my path. He's given me an opportunity for Christian ministry. That doesn't just happen for pastors, that happens for every one of you in this room. You have concern for God's people. Number three, 
In Christian ministry, you make sacrifices for the mission. This just flows right out of what we just said, but you're going to make a sacrifice for the mission. Verse 19, it's so easy for us because we don't live when they lived and we don't live where they lived. It's so easy for us us to read this verse. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. I'm sending Timothy to you and we just move on to the next verse. This is what that meant. I just asked Google this week and I pulled it up. Rome to Philippi, 800 miles. I'm going to send him. He's coming. 800 miles. This is kind of what it looks like. First leg of the journey is about 350 miles down the Via Appia. It's a nice scenic view right there. Then you're going to get up to the edge of Italy, and you're going to have 90 miles across the Adriatic Sea. Rough waters, same sort of waters Paul got shipwrecked in. Then you've got another 360 miles down the Via Ignatia until you get to Philippi. 800 miles. A minimum of six weeks one way, and then remember, he wants him to come back the other way and bring news back from Philippi. 1,600 miles with no bullet train, no airplane, no bicycle. He's hoofing it. 1,600 miles. Probably took him three months to go all the way there and back. I don't know about you, but I got a lot planned in the next three months. Person who's determined can get a lot done in three months. You're going to have to make a sacrifice to do that. Timothy made it, gladly. It's a sacrifice. What about Epaphroditus? Look what Paul says in verse 27. He was ill near to death. And then he brings it up again in verse 30. He says he nearly died for the work of Christ. It cost him something. In this situation, it cost him his health. The commentaries I read this week were we're belaboring the point that this really was a serious illness. Paul keeps bringing it up. He was near death. This isn't like in my house, okay, where we start to pass sickness around. You know how you pass sickness around at your house? We've been passing around the flu. There's one of us down right now. Two of us have already had it, and we're walling off the other three to try to keep them away from it. But in my house, this is how it goes. Kid one has the flu. Oh, poor thing. Kid two has a flu. Oh, take her to the doctor. Landon has the flu. It's just the man flu. It's like barely a cold. Get up and just come on. This is no man flu that we're talking about. We say he was sick. We're saying he was near death. That's why he's so worried because word got back to Philippi. He's about to die. He's really, really sick. And he's concerned for his friends. And the point here is that he made a sacrifice. You can come to church every Sunday. There's not a whole lot going on in anybody's life Sunday mornings. You can come and you can participate and you can attend. And it's really not going to cost you much of anything. But to truly be involved in Christian ministry, I'm not just talking about things that happen here when our doors are open. I'm talking about in your life, being ready for these interruptions that God may send your way, being faithful to serve here. It's going to cost you something. It might cost you money or time or reputation or emotional energy and investment in other people. It's going to cost you something. 
I want you to think about your life like it was a $100 bill, okay? You have 100 bucks to spend for God. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm prone to get super excited about like stories of missionaries and people who say, I felt the Lord calling me and I took my $100 and I slapped it down on the table and I pushed it to the middle and I said, I'm all in. Where do you want me to go? And God said, I want you to go to Timbuktu and I want you to do this and you're going to sell everything you own. And I hear those stories sometimes and I say, man, that's exciting. And I say, I wonder if I could do that if God called me. Or I wonder if God has called me to do that and I haven't done it. And we sort of idolize or, or uh, romanticize these stories of people just pushing their $100 bill all the way to the middle. But what if God doesn't want your $100 bill all at once? What if he wants you to go down to the bank and cash it in for a bag of quarters? And he wants it one quarter at a time on stuff that isn't as exciting as moving around the world to Timbuktu? And what if he says, hey, I'm calling in a quarter for Awana Wednesday nights. I need you. That's not a huge sacrifice, but it's some sacrifice, right? You could do other stuff. You're busy. Kids are bratty. They're wound up at the end of the day. It's just a quarter, one quarter, Awana. What if he says, hey, one quarter for your neighbor who doesn't go to church. I'm calling it in. Can you get as excited about that as pushing your $100 bill to the middle of the table? Sometimes it just seems so small and insignificant we don't get excited about it. But what if it's one quarter for your neighbor who needs to be invited to church? What if it's a quarter for a word of encouragement that you're busy and you're behind at work, everybody's behind at work, and you don't know when you're going to squeeze it in, but you need to write, handwrite somebody a note of encouragement and send it to them, one quarter? What if it's going to Kenya with us next summer? We won't leave you there. We'll bring you home. One quarter to go teach believers in Kenya who need to hear about Jesus and need to know the truth of his word. What if it's a quarter for youth camp? You're like, no, at least 50 cents for youth camp. More than a quarter. Okay, 50 cents for youth camp. Will you cash it in? to go in to spend a, you, spend a week with our students. Look, it's easy to sit back and to, to think about missionaries who just uproot, sell it all, leave and go, and they push that $100, $100 bills to the middle. Most of us aren't called to do that. I really think most of us are supposed to carry around a bag of quarters and just cash them in one at a time. Faithful service, day after day, Wednesday night after Wednesday night, going to check on your neighbor, inviting them to church, loving on kids down in the nursery, serving people when they interrupt your schedule and not seeing them as interruption, but seeing them as God crossing your path, you just cash it in one at a time. It's going to cost you. It might be $100 all at once. And if you become convinced that God wants you to do, by all means, slide it to the middle and go. But if God wants you to carry around that bag of quarters, you better not hold it with a closed fist, but you better be ready to put them out one at a time, one at a time. It's not as exciting. It doesn't result in great stories like missionaries have or sometimes pastors have or whatever, but just one at a time, cash them in. It'll cost you. Number four, in Christian ministry, you will find great joy. You'll find great joy. Verse 19 
He's hoping that Timothy will come back with good news so that he may be cheered. Verse 28, I'm eager to send Epaphroditus that you may rejoice. And then in verse uh, 29, he says, receive him in the Lord with all joy. And we've talked about rejoicing in this series. It's worshiping with joy. And when you're involved in Christian ministry, there will be great joy. Now, I want to be honest with you. There will also be great frustration and discouragement and pain. It will happen. That's part of the cost. So you're going to invite some people to church, and they're going to say no. And you're going to invite some people to church for the second time, and it's going to damage your relationship because they're going to feel like you're being too pushy. You're going to teach that kid Sunday school class, and I'll just tell you straight up, they're brats. They're unruly. They're dis- they are. Ask our Sunday school teachers. That's, that's the way it is. It's going to hurt at times. You're going to invest in people whose marriage is struggling, and you're going to see them walk away from each other for all the wrong reasons. It's going to hurt. You're going to invest in some people, and they're not just going to walk away from a marriage. They're going to walk away from Jesus. That will happen. But Paul's reminding the church in Philippi, and I think it's a good reminder for us. Yes, there will be frustration and discouragement and pain and hurt. All that's going to come. But there's also going to be a lot of joy when you do this. A lot of joy. You're going to invite people to church, and you're going to think, they're not coming in a million years. And you know what they're going to say? Sure, I'd love to come. Some of those people you invite to church just almost on seemingly a whim, they're going to come and they're going to hear the gospel and they're going to get saved and God's going to change their life. That happens in our church. It can happen with you. You teach that kid's Sunday school class and you spend week after week up there and you're frustrated and you think they're not listening. And then one day you look up on the stage and you see all these young people up here and you say, I taught them in Sunday school. How did that happen? I remember how, who do we let lead worship in this church? I remember those kids when they were in my class. There's joy in that when you see the investment you've made in somebody pay off in the long run. And you're going to have people that you invest in. And you're going to see them face a difficult season in their marriage or their family life. And you're going to see them, even though it's not easy, pull together and come through it stronger on the other side. And there's so much joy in that. And you're going to see people who you invest in at Vacation Bible School and Wednesday night Awanas and Wednesday night youth and Sunday morning Sunday school and going to preteen camp and going to youth camp and mentoring them and discipling them. You're going to see them grow up and they're not going to have any ever this big major crisis of faith and struggle with sin. They're just going to follow faithfully after Jesus and you're going to see that and there's so much joy in that. And what Paul's saying to Timothy and Epaphroditus and the church in Philippi, look, no one has any illusion that it's all easy. But there's so much joy when you do what God's calling you to do. When you stop seeing these interruptions and you start seeing people and opportunities to minister and to be involved in ministry. So you'll find great joy. Last idea is this. In Christian ministry, you must be focused on Christ. And I know that seems elementary and simple, but it's important. It's so easy to get busy in church stuff that you miss this. Look at verse 21. 
He's comparing Timothy to all these other people around him. He says, look, all these other people, they just seek their own interest. Timothy seeks the interests of Christ. You know his proven worth. How as a son with the father, he served with me in the gospel. What does it mean that he served with Paul in the gospel? It means that Timothy understood, as Tyler prayed earlier, that the God over all creation is holy, holy, holy. And Timothy understood that we are not. We're sinners, and our sin separates us from the holy God. And he understood the only way that sinners can be reconciled in a relationship with God is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. What he just described in Philippians 2, 1 to 11. Humbled himself, took the form of a servant, died on a cross, raised from the dead. When people believe in that, they can be reunited and reconciled to God. And Timothy said, I'm going to give my life in ministry and service to connect people with that message. So that people can be reconnected with God. His focus in all of it wasn't Paul or the church in Philippi or anyone else. His focus is Christ. And the same thing's true of Epaphroditus. This is my favorite verse in the passage. I won't lie to you and say it's my favorite verse in the whole book. But look at verse 30. He nearly died, Epaphroditus, he nearly died for the work of who? Christ. It's not the work of the Philippians that he's doing. They took the offering and gave it to him and told him to carry it. But it's not for the Philippians. And it's not even for Paul that he's carrying this sack of money. It's from the Philippians to Paul, but it's for Christ. And when you get that in your brain, it changes the way you serve. It changes the way you serve in this church, and it changes the way you serve people outside of this church. It changes how you view Christian ministry. You start to think... I'm doing this, not for the snotty-nosed kid in the nursery who can't even say my name, not for the kid who won't listen to me in fifth grade Sunday school, not for the youth that's just obnoxious and it's like I'm talking to a wall, not for my neighbor who's so mean to me after I keep inviting him to church. You're not doing it for them. You're doing it for Jesus. And it changes the way you view service. Your focus must be Christ, not yourself and your goodness in all of it, Not somebody else and their need for you. Not even your church family. But your focus is Christ. So this morning, the application, I think, is really simple. As a church, the challenge is to look at ourselves and to examine our lives and to examine the way that we minister to others and say, does this, am I moving in the right direction? Does this look like me at all? And if not, am I willing to turn from that this morning and change the way that I think about Christian ministry? And the application, again, for Hunter is simple. is simply to say, in your life, as you invest in our people to make disciples and to equip saints for the work of the ministry, this is what you're shooting for. It's Philippians 2, 19 to 30. People who minister and serve here and outside of here like this. And then secondly, to look at yourself. And to say, do these things characterize my ministry as a servant of the gospel and as a pastor at Emmanuel? So here's what we're going to do. Hunter's going to come up to the front, and I'm going to ask our elders and our deacons to come up to the front as well. And we're going to pray for Hunter. We're going to thank God for him. And we're going to pray for God's blessing on his ministry here and God's direction on his ministry here. And then when we're done praying... These guys are going to sit down and we're going to stand up together and we're going to sing. And we're going to respond to the Lord as we've listened to his word this morning.
So let's pray. You join me. Father, we're grateful for the scriptures and for the truths that they contain, for the challenge that is set forth. Father, we thank you for Hunter, for your grace in his life and saving him and giving him new life, changing his heart. We thank you for calling him to vocational ministry, giving him this desire to serve you by serving students and their families. Father, we pray that you would give Hunter wisdom, wisdom to understand your word and apply it to his life. Even this morning, we pray that you would give him wisdom to apply these truths from Philippians and to think about how his ministry needs to look in light of what we see in Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul. Father, we pray for Hunter's family, that you would guard them and keep them close to each other and close to you. Father, we pray as he leads his wife and as he shares the gospel with his kids, that you would be honored in that and you would be at work in that. Father, we pray for Hunter as he leads our youth and leads uh, our youth workers and our volunteers upstairs. Father, that you would give him wisdom to do that. You would give him continued passion for that. Father, help him to communicate the truths of your word clearly. Father, help his focus to continue to be on making genuine disciples. Father, we're grateful that in your providence and in your plan that you have brought the Siegler family to Emmanuel. We love them. We thank you for them. We pray that you would continue to be honored in their service and their ministry here. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.